Welcome to Hydrogen, a tracking transition event and podcast series presented by Energy Voice. In this episode, I'm in conversation with our principal partners, Deloitte, Costain and Faskin, as we look back and reminisce about the highlights of our series about hydrogen. My name is Ed Reed. I'm an editor at Energy Voice and I've been moderating this tracking transition series. I'm delighted to welcome back Daniel Grosvenor, Renewables Leader, Deloitte UK, and Grant Spence, Project Director at Costain and Daniel Brock, co-lead of Faskin's Hydrogen Energy Advisory Team. Thanks for joining me, all of you. The aim of this discussion is to unpack uh, some of those themes that we tabled in the fourth session. And, and just to remind our listeners, you can catch up on all four episodes at www.trackinghydrogen.com. We close the webinar series with a look at what's coming next and, and, and how to see what may shake out. And I think this is the really interesting point about how things have changed over the last year. Companies now seem to be really focused on thinking projects through. I think initially there was a sort of more of a focus on production, how to, how to go about it. And now I think we're seeing more about the offtake deals and where that hydrogen may go. The other big change uh, has been the way in which energy prices have soared since that first episode. I mean, we launched that first webinar in, in April 2021. And there was a sense at the time that the energy picture was starting to change after those sort of pandemic lows. But the invasion of Ukraine by Russia has really accelerated this move. Among plans to, to choke off flows from Russia, Europe's considering a number of options. And in the short term, this is going to be focused on, on feedstocks like LNG and coal. But further out, the EU has set some really aggressive hydrogen targets. And I think you know that the, there is a sense in which the energy world is changing and it seems like hydrogen's got a chance to really make its mark. Daniel Grosvenor, I'm going to start with you. In a world where we've shifted back, I suppose, into scarcity and, and high prices for energy, do you think that there's still scope for hydrogen? I think it's a, it's a good question, Ed. And it does seem like an awful long time ago when we started this series. And uh, yeah, the world has definitely changed. Hydrogen certainly still has a role to play. And it may be a bigger emphasis on green rather than blue. But if we're all going to reduce our consumption of natural gas, you know, oil, diesel. Yeah, we're going to need something to replace it. And hydrogen has always been a possible way to replace those hydrocarbons in, in our energy system. Um, and perhaps it's even more important that something comes in to replace those hydrocarbons now. I'd quite happily jump in there as well, Ed, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, Grant, I was, I was, I was going to say, I know, I know you have feelings about uh, blue and green hydrogen apart from anything else. Uh, no, so. it, was, it was more on the just the fact that if you look at the last year's data for the UK, where we've got a normal year, which is 2019, if you look at energy consumption, 40% of our energy consumption was petroleum products, 34% natural gas, 18% electricity, and a decent chunk of that was produced from fossil fuels as well. So um, should it is electricity, is it hydrogen? It's going to be so hard to decarbonize that fossil fuel content that uh, the idea that we could do it with electricity alone, uh, we just shouldn't be having the conversation. The question is how much hydrogen versus how much electricity, not is there a place for hydrogen? Uh, I don't think we can do net zero without it. I think the energy crisis created by the invasion of Ukraine by Russia is an interesting sort of inflection point here, because on the one hand, you could think of it as this is going to set back the project of a transition to cleaner energy because of the, <laughs> the scarcity that it's going to create, the imperative to keep people properly powered and 
have them continuing to have access to energy as Europe scrambles to find alternatives. But the other possibility, which I think actually is more likely, is that it's going to drive the transition even harder. I think the European Union is now committed to getting off Russian gas and Russian energy. And as it thinks to where it's going to find the replacement supply, it has options. I can tell you from a Canadian perspective, the opportunity to be able to be a major source of energy for Europe in the form of liquid natural gas, transitioning to liquid ammonia as a carrier for hydrogen, it represents a, a, a huge opportunity that the Canadian government, Canadian industry is trying to figure out right away how it could participate in this. And it's not, it won't be the only uh, energy exporter looking at how it could help Europe solve its challenge. And I think the focus is going to be on sending cleaner energy to Europe than they would otherwise get from Europe. So I, I'm, I'm actually more optimistic. And, and I don't think I agree with Daniel. I think the emphasis is going away from green versus blue or gray hydrogen, at least in the Canadian context. There's a growing acceptance that hydrogen has a key role to play. There is currently an abundance of gray hydrogen produced in Canada and the capacity to produce an abundance of blue and increasingly green hydrogen. The transition doesn't need to wait for the green hydrogen because using gray hydrogen in the transition is still significantly less carbon intense than the alternatives. So I see this transition as, ha as happening kind of without the sort of disruptions that might be required if you said we have to get rid of the fossil fuel sector altogether and say, no, we're gonna, this is a, a slow transition. Make Taking advantage of the resources we have available to us today as we increasingly look toward greening the energy supply. I'll hang fire on the green and blue hydrogen for now, Ed, but just <laughs> on the, 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 the project side of things, Daniel, I mean, when you look at South Wales, we presently import a fair chunk of the UK's gas through the LNG terminals. The port authorities will be telling you that the, uh, the ships are lining up to offload because the price is so good. Whereas at the start of the energy crisis, um, the low prices meant the gas was going somewhere else like Japan. In the future, if you're able to import the LNG and convert it to blue hydrogen, whether you can import green hydrogen, perhaps in the form of ammonia through, um, you know, maybe made with, through solar in the Middle East and in North Africa, or even if you can indigenously produce it with offshore floating wind in the Celtic Sea, then you've got a resilience there that we don't have with the LNG at the moment. So we can design in resilience. And if the, the present sort of crisis in Ukraine actually encourages us to design in that resilience, so much the better, I think. I suppose my original comment was more around, I, I think, as well as a focus on security of supply, I think we've seen a big shift in the economics as well over the last 12 months. I can't remember what the gas price was 12 months ago, but it wasn't 200p a therm. <laughs> and I, I do think that that could fundamentally shift the pace of the transition and, and how we move. So I think my comments on blue are more of a comment on anything that uses natural gas as a fuel source. Yeah, I think the economics on that are fundamentally shifted. They actually shifted before Russia invaded Ukraine. We already had you know, sky-high gas prices, and I, I think that will change things. And I, I, you know, the economics of a, of a green hydrogen system today look dramatically different to when we started this series because they're probably cost-competitive versus blue, possibly versus grey, versus diesel, versus natural gas or other things. So 
I, I think the energy crisis is changing the economics of the solutions and the transition as well as as well as the political environment that we we live in. Yeah, I think I think there's a really interesting point there, isn't there, about about sort of resilience and with this sort of energy security idea that's kind of been foregrounded, I suppose, by the invasion of Ukraine, but sort of really intersecting with price. Which I, and I think is, that makes it a particularly sort of a powerful cocktail, doesn't it? Going forward, I mean, I think look, let let, let let's drill down into a little bit about you know the details. I mean, obviously, you know, we talked about a year ago. You know, things seemed a bit more nebulous, and now there's a sense that we're sort of starting to make progress. Grant, I'm gonna I'm gonna come to you. You know, are there are there any sort of particular signs that that you are kind of watching to let us know? In the UK context, how how kind of progress is going on those those hydrogen projects? Is, is are there any are there any exciting or interesting things that you you're, you've seen? There's there's quite a lot of exciting stuff that I, I need to be careful maybe what I say because <laughs> um, you know we're, we're still um, developing the projects and and a lot of them are still at feasibility stage. But uh, something that's been really exciting is when you start taking the the discrete parts of the jigsaw that people are trying to produce and you start to think about how you would practically deliver stuff. Talking to National Grid about their project union uh, concept and uh, the hydrogen backbone about the UK, how that might plug into South Wales and also looking at uh, the likes of the, the kind of blue and the green hydrogen production projects that, that people are talking about, the hydrogen consumption projects that people are talking about in South Wales. How do you connect those to produce projects. And, and one key thing, I think, that uh, it goes against what you were saying, Daniel, earlier is um, if you were a kind of point-to-point -point supply and you, uh, your green hydrogen would only get produced when it was windy, then if you're an industrial consumer, you don't really want an intermittent supply of hydrogen. It's sort of cheap blue hydrogen that gets something going is um, until you've got maybe a hydrogen backbone and some storage, it, uh, it might be the, more the way to get things off the ground. Although I wouldn't disagree that uh, we need to figure out how to be green and sustainable ultimately in the future. But, uh, you know, Blue, at least um, in the first instance, when you, you're trying to design things to work together, it is maybe easier to get off the ground. In, in the Canadian context, we're seeing the green shoots. Uh, there was a national conference on hydrogen in Calgary, Alberta, held just uh, last week. And a number of announcements coming out of that, including, I think, an important one from TC Energy, a pipeline company here in Canada, to basically create a, a, a blue production facility that would start at 60 tonnes and move to 150 tons of hydrogen a day. And as part of a, a hub strategy that they're looking to deploy nationally. The challenge of course there is the same challenge that everyone's gonna face everywhere, which is where's the offtake and who's using the hydrogen and how are they using it? What are the industries that are gonna use hydrogen, convert to hydrogen? What are the applications? Fuel cells are a great application. Everyone keeps talking about over the road materials handling or heavy duty truck applications, which are great, but they're not there yet. I mean, uh, Nicola showed up at the conference and brought a truck, but they're not producing the tr tr trucks yet. So here we are, we've got, you know, companies now looking at how they can position themselves and develop in production and supply chain to supply a domestic Canadian market, but the market's not there yet. And I know it's different in the UK. Maybe it, in some ways, I think you might be more, more advanced and maybe the, at the political level and the industrial level, people are further along in the thinking about how to affect the transition than not some other jurisdictions, maybe even like Canada. But that's the challenge. The challenge is how are we gonna use the energy? And so until that gets sorted out, and 
I think in at least I've I've said we talk about the, the shows that we did. Um, I think the theme I kept coming back to was the the importance of small scale. Everyone talks about scaling the industry, but I think small scale projects, which not to demonstrate technology, but to show how the technology can be a replacement technology, whether it's a mobile application or stationary power. But at least initially, those projects are going to be relatively small in scale to demonstrate, to effectively persuade the market that uh, there is a clean solution. Hydrogen is is a main part of that solution, and it's accessible. It, it's 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 accessible today. What do you think is small scale, Daniel? Sorry, I'm, I'm asking the questions. <laughs> well, I'll, you know, I could talk about it in terms of, say, in the vehicle application, small fleet deployments. So taking class eight or class six trucks and creating uh, a system where re- return to base fleets can be meaningfully converted to hydrogen and seeing those start to be deployed, you know, in the supply chain in Canada. There are certain markets where over the road transportation of goods is uh, very, you know, it's very focused, very intense. And there are great opportunities to demonstrate the viability of hydrogen by a, a relatively modest investment in refueling infrastructure that can feed a, a fleet that is returning to a single point. Eventually, you'll need the dispensing infrastructure to be deployed across entire routes. But at least initially, fleets that return to base can be converted today. And I think there are opportunities to do that. So that's like one example, small material handling projects in warehousing with uh, forklifts, again, with either production and dispensing on site, or more importantly, perhaps the delivery of hydrogen. So uh, projects that will spur investments in the supply chain to deliver hydrogen in places where it will be used in like warehousing. I mean, I think that sounds like a really interesting idea about sort of small scale resilience, doesn't it? I mean, I think, you know, we, we talked about that sort of, you know, that, that sort of big kind of country level, you know, hydrogen as a, as, as a way for energy security. But I think, you know, obviously there is, there is I suppose, like a sort of a scope for, for, for a smaller scale project. So Dan Grosvenor, what do you think? I mean, you know, we, we, we've had a mention of hubs, you know, obviously clusters in the UK are, you know, kind of being going to play a big part. What, what are your thoughts about uh, the, the role of, of clusters as a way to sort of get those hydrogen projects moving? Well, I, I think we are we are seeing the clusters come forward, and I think in the in the short term, having production close to consumption, yeah, you know, makes a lot of things easier, and and hence a cluster makes a lot of sense. And, and almost going back on one of one of Dan's comments, what we're starting to see now, and and a lot more than we, when we started this sequence, are clients integrating the whole supply chain within their operations, almost internalizing the whole thing, which is something you can do with hydrogen actually relatively easy, whether it's in mining, industrials, or shipping, thinking about how do they decarbonize their entire fuel cycle or supply chain and and looking to bring it all in-house in doing so. So you you can almost take the hydrogen to the mine or to the ship. You, you You don't necessarily need to connect to a grid or anything else you can do a lot of this yourself and i think that's a really interesting piece where some companies have decided that they don't need to wait for the legislation or the initiatives that they can they can take this forward themselves they understand what needs to be done and they can start executing projects 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, there, we have some really interesting kind of questions around transportation, don't we? I mean, I think, you know, we've seen this kind of growth of projects and, you know, we're sort of starting to talk about uh, about that kind of consumption side. But I mean, for me, I think, you know, there's a sense that, I mean, may, maybe you feel differently about, you know, there's maybe some work to be done on, on the sort of the midstream, right? The sort of the pipelines and the shipping and things like that. Grant, I'm going to come to you. I mean, where should we go with this? Where, what What's the midstream option? Are we moving fast enough to be able to deliver the, the, the sort of the feedstock to where it needs to go? It's it's all about how you build out. I think if you think about the, uh, I mean, the, one of the biggest projects that's presently in the UK is the Hynet project, and um, the uh, the foundational project is to take the uh, the hydrogen uh, rich off gases from the Stanlow refinery, and then send it over the fence, uh, strip out the hydrogen, and then feed it back to a new CHP in, in the refinery, which would uh, combust the hydrogen. Plus, uh, you know, there's some other off takers interested as well. You. If I remember right, it's about 150 tonnes per day uh, with the view to putting an extra two-thirds of, of capacity, uh, if that's one-third, another two-thirds in the future as part of the high net proposal in total. In South Wales, amongst other things, we're looking at uh, sort of supplying hydrogen to uh, to one of the power stations to the extent that it can combust hydrogen within the capacity uh, largely of the turbines that are there at the moment. That can give you the capability to to combust quite a lot of hydrogen. Um, The question, of course, is what do you do if the power station is not operational? Do you stick it somewhere else like the gas grid, blend it in? And to what extent are you able to do that? Uh, What does the operations look like? But um, to go beyond those initial projects, and you see some uh, um, concept of this in the high net concept proposal already is that you, you need to start thinking hydrogen pipelines and how you would actually spread the hydrogen round about the area. Um, so connecting in with the likes of National Grid's Project Union concept is very important. Also working with the local utility in Wales, Wales and West Utilities for, for their idea and joining it all up. So uh, in terms of where we're going, you need to start thinking about answering some engineering questions about how do you get to where you want to be? Do you need a hydrogen backbone to support those initial projects? Well, you can do the first projects, but then do you need it to support the build-out projects? And if you do, when do you need it by? If you're looking at rolling out hydrogen for hydrogen boilers across the region, then um, you know when do you need to have the hydrogen pipelines there so that you can transition all of that domestic heat demand to hydrogen, if indeed that's the way it's going to go. And lastly, as well, in South Wales, there's a significant amount of the UK's energy is imported and then exported through Wales to the rest of the UK. So do you need to decarbonise the likes of South Wales first? Because if you haven't got the infrastructure in place, it's not all going to happen at the same time across the whole of the UK. You maybe need to do some parts of the UK first so that they can then support the decarbonisation of more remote parts, maybe gas network-wise, of, of the UK. So we talk about plans. We really need more of an engineering plan that has got an idea of the sequence of events that needs to happen so that you can actually achieve net zero by 2050 like we need to. Is it is it is it retrofitting existing pipeline? Is it new pipeline grant? What's the infrastructure currently like? in the UK? Potentially a lot of all of that. (laughs) Some of the pipes are old. So there's already a replacement program that is on the go where they're looking at replacing the pipes between now and 2050. So you can choose to replace the pipes with pipes that would be hydrogen capable. 
right. if you were doing it anyway. There's some places where there's multiple pipes, so you can um, national grids uh, where possible are looking at potentially running parallel methane and, and hydrogen pipelines because that enables them to, well, it's either that or they need to look at blending and deblending potentially, which could be quite complicated technology. A lot of metering, complicated metering in to work out what was happening for billing people and then potentially only needing the infrastructure for 10 to 15 years until you went 100% hydrogen. So there's a cost benefit question at the moment about how you actually roll out hydrogen that's got some of those dependencies. And uh, in particular for Wales, there's only one pipeline that connects back from Milford Haven in Pembrokeshire back into uh, the Swansea area. So if you're not doing the blending, deblending thing, do you need a second pipeline to be able to still export methane to the rest of the UK whilst converting South Wales to hydrogen as one of the first parts of the country if that's how you decarbonize it? So there's a lot of questions to be answered. And I think the an- it's going to be very location-specific, Daniel. The, the answer is almost certainly all of the above. <laughs> the answer is which bits and where. Yeah. Denbrock, I'm gonna I'm gonna come to you. I mean, I, I you you mentioned uh, that kind of LNG model, and obviously, I suppose you know that sort of hydrogen ammonia kind of export mm-hmm. option. How do you how do you see that going? I mean, do, do you, is is are there are there plans underway? I mean, obviously, you know, we've seen the sort of you know this resumption of of, of interest in uh, LNG deals out of out of the US and 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 Canada, and obviously the Europeans market's got to look quite quite appealing, at least in the short term. Although obviously with a sort of a move into hydrogen coming at a sort of a point, do you think that enough is being done to sort of support that export hydrogen plan along that along that kind of east coast? Yeah, it's very early days, actually. It's kind of too bad to say that because um, the opportunity has been present for a while. But again, the crisis in the Ukraine, the invasion in Ukraine has sort of focused attention now on the European predicament. What's going to be required is massive investments in infrastructure. I mean, we don't have the ships to, sh- to ship the, <laughs> the energy. If that were for sending it by vessel, they don't exist. Those vessels don't exist today. They need to be built. The ports need to, at least on the Canadian side, need to be configured to be able to receive the energy, store it, and, and and export it. And so, it is a very large undertaking that requires. And I, I always uh, hesitate to say this, but it actually requires government leadership, and the incentives need to be put in place to get the Canadian industry to see the opportunity. These need to be investments that are backstopped, so the companies will feel comfortable, you know, investing the time, energy and money to build the supply chains necessary to be able to supply this new market. So I I think the planning of this is just, at least on the Canadian side, I would argue as well in the United States as well, that I think they're starting to develop that thinking, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's early days and it is going to require governments to incent and backstop the investments needed in order for this to happen. And again, I, 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 um, in the Canadian context, I think of hydrogen as electricity. <laughs> so I, I think of when I think of hydrogen in the best use cases, I think of it replacing diesel. And so obviously in the transportation sector, in in other applications, stationary power, that that those are compelling use cases for me. Displacing what was, at least until recently, inexpensive natural gas with more expensive hydrogen in the pipeline to green the pipeline didn't seem to me to be a sustainable long-term economic play for hydrogen. Now that's changing. Uh, and maybe it is going to become more compelling from a financial point of view. But I go back to the point, I don't know how Europe is going to use the hydrogen. So just that's one thing, getting it there is going to be a big challenge. And then how is it used? 
does it meaningfully displace the use of diesel and transportation, for example, in Europe? One would hope so. In the Canadian context, that's where I see the, the near-term opportunity. And again, it requires governments to create the incentives necessary for the markets to, to be created, for companies to make the investments that would be needed to affect the transition. And the same question to you, Dan. What are your thoughts on the prospects for hydrogen to replace LNG? I think we touched on it earlier, and I think one of Grant's comments, I, I, I do think in, in the short term, having consumption and production together makes most sense. We've talked about pipelines in the UK. I, I think moving hydrogen or ammonia from one bit of the UK to another is has challenges. I, I'm not sure moving it across the Atlantic is going to necessarily make that any easier or cheaper. So I think there are some merits on, on local production. But I, I I wonder whether the current crisis, I think we're going to see more energy nationalism uh, in general, mm. but we may actually see you know, the North Atlantic come back together from an energy point of view as well. Is it going to be hydrogen coming across the Atlantic or actually why, the easiest thing might be to bring the LNG across in, in greater volumes? And there's still a huge price differential between North American gas and European gas. I'm not sure the North Americans want to equalize that, but um, <laughs> that, yeah, there, there is certainly, it might be easier to bring some LNG or more LNG across rather than start looking at hydrogen and then focus on, on domestic production. Certainly, if you're looking at green hydrogen, I'm not sure North America is where you would naturally go. You may go in Southern Europe or, or North Africa first, yeah, with great solar and wind resources, cheap land the ability to make it, and, and that's a shorter journey. But I, I think we are probably going to see the, the North Atlantic work closer together on energy as well as other things in the, in the short term. Might not be hydrogen first, but um, it may lead there over time. Yeah, sure. And I, I suppose, you know, it's, it, it is interesting. Isn't it? I suppose it kind of comes back to like a question about sort of governmental support. And I think, you know, there are a number of sort of Middle Eastern states, uh, Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia, who are really sort of pushing the the hydrogen, you know, obviously with, with an eye to sort of capturing those sort of future energy flows. And I, I suppose, you know, looking at the, the, the amount of money that those guys can, you know, sort of allocate to solving these problems uh it, it it feels that that's kind of probably going to take a, a sort of a, a first step doesn't it but i was just look, look, looking at you know what what governments and companies should be doing well the near-term goals let, let's let's come back to the uk and, and sort of focus in there a bit grant i'm sure you've got a strong feeling about 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 steps that the government should uh should should take to sort of drive uh progress forward in this case i don't know if i'd say just government but i think the 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 biggest problem that we have is the fact that infrastructure either facilitates or constrains you. You know, if you don't have a hydrogen pipeline system, then you can't import hydrogen into it, either in blue hydrogen or the form uh, green hydrogen or, or ammonia. And if you've got a regulated business where you're not encouraged to spend more money than uh, the consumers can afford, then you're not going to build yourself uh, an ammonia or a, a green hydrogen importation terminal unless you've got a fairly good idea that you're going to A, bring in the ammonia or the hydrogen, and also there's a pipeline system that you can use to export it to the rest of, of the UK. And Wales is a really ideal place 
to put that kind of thing because that's where we've got two LNG terminals at the minute. If you're going to bring in ships from North Africa, from Southern Europe, then it's the, it's the first place that you come to in the UK. It's got an excellent deep water harbour, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you've then got the, what comes first? You know, if you don't build the pipelines because you want to know the projects to import ammonia or, or hydrogen are going to turn up, then you have that chicken and egg problem where someone needs to go first. Because if everybody else is waiting on the other side of the, the, the equation for certainty to make their investment decisions, then you risk getting in a Mexican standoff. And and I think that's where um, we, we need the government to be bold and to put net zero planning ahead of the next five-year planning and to make decisions that free up projects to be able to uh, to go forwards and uh, and not always make the decisions that would be uh, of most most cost effective for the next 5 years I mean, you know, and Grant. I mean, sticking with you. I mean, look. Obviously, you know, the, the government side, and but there's also a company side, right? Yeah. And I think you know, obviously, the, the government is keen that uh, that companies kind of step up and and mm. and, and t- play their part. Yeah. What 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 do you think the companies should be doing to sort of match these efforts by government? Well, I mean, I think the companies and the government are both already doing an awful lot. I mean, there's an awful lot of money being invested in the uh, the decarbonisation uh, work that's going on in the industrial clusters at the minute. And that's 50% funded half by uh, by industry, half by government. So, you know, both parties have put a significant amount of investment into uh, developing what's been developed at the moment in the UK. Both government and, uh, and private sector are very invested in taking this forward and making it work. And there's a lot of enthusiasm for that. What may be missing is that picture at the moment as to how it all comes together. You know what the you know a low regret solution might look like from the perspective of net zero as a whole, uh, and quite how it all joins might join together in a way that works technically would happen on time, and is also maybe the lowest cost at the end of the day. Uh, that might not be the lowest cost initially, but then the best way of deferring cost is to not spend money, and then that <laughs> maybe threatens that we don't hit twenty fifty in the uh, at the end of the day. Dan Grosvenor, what are your thoughts? Who 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 should we be scrutinising the most in terms of sort of driving progress? I mean, governments tend to say companies, companies tend to say government. Who 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 do you think uh, is is uh, in the in the driving seat? I think both need to operate in tandem and quickly. So, you know, we, we're starting to see a lot of companies take some really bold decisions and drive things forward. Not at colossal scale yet, but that scale is increasing. I, I think they, they start to get wary when they're not sure whether, you know, those decisions are going to be, I think, use your friend Grant, no, no regrets. Yeah, I, I think if the government can make policy clear, direction clear, and, and continue to rapidly move down that pathway... I think we will see companies continue to make bold and exciting investment decisions and, and drive this forward. Hopefully, we can see that in tandem. I think the biggest risk is a major U-turn once people have put shovels in the ground and other things and, and are sitting on a load of stranded assets. And I think that will that will really hurt our progress towards 2050. Just coming back to the thing, infrastructure is so important and it's also going to be pretty expensive. There is a document National Grid produced uh, in November last year where they said they reckoned there was £16 billion worth of infrastructure needed over the next 20 years. 
because renewables are in the wrong place and we have to be able to connect them into the, uh, the grid. In the H21 hydrogen study that was done, they reckoned the, uh, the hydrogen infrastructure for the north of England could cost three and a half billion pounds. And that's not looking at the whole of the UK. So we're talking, you know, big numbers, but they're talked about separately. And I think what we really need to do is to work out how we we plug hydrogen and electricity together so that we can do net zero as a whole. We talk about whole system engineering, but then you get the answer for electricity, you get the answer for hydrogen. We need to work out how we get the answer for net zero. Is it easier to move molecules about the country than electrons? Well, if you if you consider them separately, that's not the way to figure it out. We, we need to work together on this. It'll be interesting to see what our new independent system operator devises in the I think the, that that grand plan is one of the first things that they are due to develop but they're the electricity system operator and we had an integrated gas and electricity transmission asset owner and they're selling off the gas bit to Macquarie so um that's less integrated than it, it was so um it, regardless of who owns the assets you know they need to work together to uh, to come up with an energy solution not just an electricity or a gas solution yeah I think that's, that sounds like a good point to end on. I think, you know, again, it, it kind of feels like we're kind of coming back to it, like an, an all of the above sort of a solution, doesn't it? To get all of the kind of parts moving in the right order at the right speeds to hit that, you know, what what does seem like a big target of 2050 net zero. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a major challenge. But listen, I'd like to conclude by saying thank you to our guests, Daniel, Daniel and Grant from Deloitte, Faskin and Costain. If you've enjoyed this, but you haven't seen the videos from the Hydrogen, a tracking transition event, please do chase them down. You can find them at www.trackinghydrogen.com. While this may be the end of our Hydrogen series, we continue tracking the energy transition here at Energy Voice. In late 2021, we launched an ongoing series looking at wind, and we're in the process of launching a series on carbon capture, utilisation and storage. You should probably check those out as well. To our listeners, please let us know your thoughts on this topic through our social media channels or by emailing outloud at energyvoice.com. If you'd like to be part of the conversation and share your story with the energy industry, you can also email outloud at energyvoice.com. You may already know that every week the Energy Voice team gets together to highlight important stories from the world of energy in our regular podcast episodes. So if you're not already, please do subscribe free to the award-winning Energy Voice Out Loud in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to get this essential briefing every Friday. I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.